Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Let's get right into it. The throwback episode for today is Taking Back Control with Sex Abuse Prevention Ed with Deborah Enten. Definitely an amazing episode, and we do reference this episode in the conversation today. Next, as you are cleaning for Pesach, and if you're living in Israel, I hope you're able to focus on cleaning for Pesach because of all the political stuff that's going on. So wishing everyone well, and I want to insert a public service announcement for anyone who loves music, and we're heading into Sphira time, so (laughs) make sure to get all that music in this and next week. Next, if you have any feedback or suggestions, I love it when you reach out. You can also join the WhatsApp group conversations. You can message me and I'll send you a link to join. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And here we go. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisco Show Friends Dance. Today with us, we have Rabbi Avrami Zippel from Park City, Utah. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. As I may have shared with you, this is part of our No More Silence series, which we haven't done in quite a while. But as per the request, I have put out some feelers and thank you to some of our listeners and fans who have suggested you. And once I was looking you up, I knew exactly who you were. And many of our listeners will probably also have some idea of who you are. But today we're here to go a little deeper. And then we have some exciting news at the end. So we'll get to that soon. So let's get started and tell us a little bit about yourself, your upbringing, and then we'll get into your story. So as is more and more popular throughout the nation these days, as, as Chabad has gotten a little bit more deeply rooted here in America, I'm a second generation Chabad Shlech to Utah. Uh, my parents started the Chabad house out here in Salt Lake City 31 years ago, and they were kind enough to bring me along for the ride. I'm the oldest. I was a little baby when they moved out of here. My first birthday party was Chabad's first ever event in the state. And I grew up on the job, <clears throat> as many kids in Chabad houses do. Typically, I found that the kids of Shluchim usually have very extreme responses to the environment that they're growing up in. And it really goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. Some kids decide early on that this is the life for me and this is what I want to do. And this is awesome. And this is incredible. And some kids decide this is not what I want to do. This is not for me. This is, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you mom and dad made this life choice, but I'm going to run for the hills. Uh, and I was part of the former. It was a lifestyle that had always talked to me. It had always appealed to me. It had always been something that I wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to, you know, go through yeshiva. I was introduced to my wife, who was the daughter of Shluchim in Northern California, who also had wanted to do this with her life. And we have that opportunity. We got that opportunity shortly after we were married to come out of here and join the team here at Chabad. And we've been doing it now for eight and a half years ourselves and are now raising our kids on the job. And they seem to be taking to it quite well as well. And it's interesting, you know, I think growing up in Utah, it's definitely something unique in the Jewish world. For me, I think that my perspective is somewhat colored due to the fact that it's the only life I've known. I never grew up in a larger community. I never grew up in some of the environments that a lot of people that I know nowadays have and you you learn to live with it the good that the good the bad and the ugly you you don't know any other environment you don't know any other reality and so 
on some level, it is what it is, and it's the only life you know, and you you go with it. It's 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 life at some point. This connects to any survivor or victim of sexual abuse is that a child experiencing uh, the abuse also does not know anything else. So let's get into your story. I like the connection, and I never really thought of that myself. But that's a, that's a very accurate point. I think, I mean, they are very much connected, you know, the, the various facets of my childhood. We were homeschooled as kids. Nowadays, Baruch Hashem, Chabad has a robust mechanism in place so that Shluchim's kids in more remote parts of the world can receive an education and even have some sort of social dynamic. 25 years ago, that was not the case. The world was just a little bit behind technologically. So my siblings and I were homeschooled the good old-fashioned way. There was a bedroom on the main floor of the house that was converted into a classroom, and that's where we went to school. Like I said, it's life we knew. And with all of us being home, there was some sort of need to have additional help around the house. My parents hired a babysitter as there were more of us and we were getting older and, and the needs were, were growing and adapting. And when I was eight years old, just after my eighth birthday, our family's caregiver began to sexually abuse me. And as you very correctly said, as you find yourself in that sort of dynamic and you don't have the vocabulary and the ability to speak up, you don't know what normal life outside that looks like. You just, your, your life kind of molds itself to your current realities. And on some level, you know what's going on is profoundly wrong, but you don't really have the ability to yearn for different because you don't begin to imagine to yourself what different might look like in, in that sort of instance. And I, and I think it's one of the realities that people misunderstand about, about child sexual abuse is you know, what happened to a child at a young age, it does color their perception of themselves and the world and the trusted mechanisms they have in place. And everything good about a child's world becomes altered forevermore at that point. And I would even add, it becomes altered irreparably. There's nothing you can do to give back that innocence. There's nothing you can do to give back that, that simplistic, beautiful, childish view of the world. And instead, you become to you you come to acknowledge and to accept that this is life, right? You know, the, the way I see the world now, that's that's what I'm left with. That's the version of reality that I have to go through. And for me personally, the abuse went on for a number of years, and life's journey began to get very shaped as a result of that. And it's easy to get stuck in it. I think that the greatest symptom that so many survivors struggle from is that. That, that feeling of hopelessness, the situation will never change. There is no way out. You know, there is no sunshine on the horizon to look forward to. This is what we're going to be doing forever, right? This is, you know, this is the pit that we find ourselves in forever. And that's it. We're stuck. And, and I think that it's a, it, it's a tough place to climb out of. Are you comfortable going into some detail of the abuse? For example, there's a difference between one time versus grooming and ongoing abuse. Also from a person who is in the caregiver role. And then talk to me about the dynamics. You have other siblings. There's a house. You have parents. How did this happen? So absolutely. I'll start with this. It's something which, which frustrates me a little bit. Uh, we live in a world, in an era, in a society where you mentioned the term grooming. You know, the word grooming is used very liberally these days. It's everybody and their cousin is a groomer, is involved in grooming techniques, and it's now become almost like a political football. You know, that party is a whole bunch of groomers. No, your party is a whole bunch of groomers. We're all groomers. What does that actually mean? Yeah, you know, and, and I think that any time you take a term that has any sort of meaning 
and you stretch it really, really thin and it gets applied too broadly, it completely loses any sort of meaning or content that it's actually supposed to have. Grooming is a mechanism that predators use to determine the viability of a certain situation. Grooming is a is a process that predators go through to find out something really, really straightforward. And that is, will a child keep a secret on your behalf? Can you create space between a child and all of the healthy mechanisms and realities that exist in their life? When you have a child who's raised in a loving home and everyone is there to protect this child and rally to this child's needs and, and to be there for this child, and you want to isolate that child, you want to pull them away from all of those healthy mechanisms. What predators very often will do is they'll groom the child. They will determine whether this child can keep a secret for them or not. Now, the first secret you're going to tell the child has got to be something which is pretty innocuous. You're not going to dump something on this child because if they can't keep the secret, then you, the predator, you're in big trouble all of a sudden. And so it's something small. I, I, I think when I think back to, to my situation, and, and again, you know, this is hindsight that you don't really have in the moment. This is hindsight that you you're you gain years later through years of therapy. My abuser created a dynamic where there were some very small gray areas that were approaching, you know, specifically being raised in a, in a from household. There was some slight pushing of the boundaries around Sneas that that she went through that, again, I think if I look back and I would have tattletailed on, on some of those behaviors, it would have been like, oh, a misunderstanding, a miscommunication. It wasn't that bad. And there's a trust there's a trust that 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 begins to both break and build over time. You know, the, the child does start keeping those secrets and, and begins to isolate from their family in a certain sense. And once that trust is there, there there's a bond that's created between the predator and the child because they're, you know, the ground is determined to be something where you can grow something. And for me, it did not happen once. It, it happened over a decade. It happened dozens and dozens of times over 10 years altogether. And as I really, as I look back on the the slow build and the process of how it all came together, it, it really was a very gradual buildup. There was a very slow, meticulous, intentional process of creating that dynamic. I was raised still in the generation where stranger danger was 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 our vernacular. You know, we didn't go near strange men on playgrounds who were offering lollipops. At some point now, I almost I look back and I almost chuckle to myself. You know, when was the last time there was actually a stranger giving out candy on a playground that was successful? Because you know, we've been talking about this for decades. Well, that's sure. children. Well, it's sure. You know, you're right. I I apologize. And we I, but 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 I would I would add to your point. We don't talk about show. Strange men on playgrounds, no good. In show. Well, it's a shoal. And, you know, well, if they're in shoal, they must be a person we trust. And, and you know, sometimes it, it almost feels like we're, we're slow on the uptake. You know, we're slow to kind of adapt our realities to the world that we live in. And we kind of get stuck in a certain reality. I've, I've come to understand that over 90% of children that, that get abused happens at the hands of someone who's near and dear to the child. You know, stranger danger is, is something, but it's, it's not the prevailing reality anymore. And so for me, that was a huge blind spot that I had. I would have never gone to the stranger on the playground, but to to assume or think or wonder that something dangerous might be happening at the hands of a family caregiver. I mean, no one told me about that. And and I think it's that sort of environment that 
you know, that is created that allows for this to continue without without anybody trying to stop it. And I think that understanding that about my own experiences helps me think about how I see this as a parent, as, as, as an advocate in the community. It's so crucial that we look at environments because rarely, if ever, does this happen in a vacuum. You know, very few predators walk into a situation and just from one day to the next, out of the blue, without any sort of precedent, anything that we can look back on, will just start harming a, a random strange child. There is an environment that needs to be created and it needs to be cultivated and, and is created slowly and meticulously. And I, I see that in my experiences and, and I think about how that reality plays out for so many other people. And, and I think it's something which helps me see the world through a certain way, not, not in a cynical way, God forbid, but in, in a constructive way. You know, what are what are ways that we can create safe environments and how can we be aware of unsafe environments that are already being created? So there are two things that have to happen between a perpetrator and the victim. Number one, there needs to be trust when you have that child relationship. And the second thing is very often there is some affection. It's a teacher or a, a relative, an uncle or a, a Rebbe. Here we have a nanny. And the other component here is many survivors that have that affection, trust relationship with their, with their abuser. There is that I had this happy childhood and then this also happened to me. So there's that double dynamic versus this, this person was bad and I, I view them as bad completely. So talk to me about that. So I'll start with the first. When I was growing up, I grew up in Salt Lake City. When I was only homeschooled for about like four hours a day. There were a lot of hours that I had to fill during the day. I read the paper every single day, cover to cover. Every, like, you know, the local news and the national news and like the business and the sports and the comics. There was, there was a lot of hours on my, on my hands. There was a lot of time that I had to fill. And as a kid, I was aware of the fact that there was something called sexual abuse, believe it or not. Like it, wasn't, it wasn't foreign to me. What was the key component that needed to exist in order for something to qualify as sexual abuse? It was coercion. And there, there had to be something scary, something traumatic. You know, a kid had to yell and protest and say no. And there was probably a gun or a knife. There was various components that created that dynamic of coercion. And in my situation, there was no knife and there was no gun and there were no threats and there was no pain and, and there was no yelling and there was no protesting. And so for me, the absence of all those things disqualified in my own mind as a child what was happening to me from meeting that sort of criteria. And I think it's the single greatest misunderstanding that we as a society have until this very day is how we empower our children to talk about this dynamic. This dynamic does not only happen at the hands of strangers and it doesn't only happen at the hands of bad people. There are safe people and healthy people and people you love in your life that can put you in situations where you feel compromised, where you feel uncomfortable. I think the sooner that we're willing to grapple with that and accept that and understand that, the better off we will be as a society because by and large, that is what is happening. You talked about trust and affection. My abuser throughout the duration of my abuse kept on harping on the fact that what she was doing to me really was in the interest of my own education because what she was doing to me would one day, quote, help me become a better husband. That felt very appealing to a nine-year-old, 
a 10 year old, an 11 year old. There's this very adult like component of these experiences. And there's something to look forward to. You know, these are things that adults do. And these will help educate my experience in life and my reality as an adult. And, And that's a bond right there that that thing that you can provide for a child that will allow them and compel them to compromise on every standard they have in their life and again it's it's vital that 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 we understand that as a society it's not about the lollipop you know i think that today predators use things that are far more valuable than lollipops they use that trust they use that 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 promise of something shiny out there that is far more appealing to the child than their current reality and they get that sort of access and unfettered access your second point you know you brought up about kind of the confusion that that is is part of this i remember having a a fundamental conversation with my therapist when i disclosed to my wider family. So I'm the oldest of six. I have siblings. They were all being, we're all being raised in the same house. And when I actually reported to law enforcement and there was an investigation that was about to have, you know, this was about to get very real. At that point, I told my siblings about it. I hadn't told them for about two years to that point. It was just my wife and my parents who knew. And my therapist told me something incredibly powerful. And he says, you're going to sit down with your siblings and there's going to be temptation to engage in a revising of history. And you're all going to sit down and you're all going to be like, you know what? We never liked her. We never liked her. We were always suspicious of her. There were all these red flags we should have seen. This was wholly preventable. And and he said to me, he says, you know, based on what you've told me over these years, I don't think that's true. I, I, I think that would be a disservice to yourself to engage in that sort of dishonesty because there's a desire to participate in that pattern of dishonesty because that dishonesty saves us from confusion. In the current dynamic, this situation is confusing. This was someone who raised us as children. We had every reason to believe that she loved us. We had every reason to love her. And at the same time she was doing this, how are we supposed to hold all those realities in one mind, in one heart? It's far easier to be like, the whole thing was off from the beginning. It was all a hoax. And that's not true. It's just it's just not true. And that's the complex part of this journey is the need to grapple forevermore with that confusion. And I think I talk to survivors all the time who go through this at the hands of a loved one, at the hands of a sibling, at the hands of a, a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or, or, or a trusted adult in their life. And it's that confusion that almost precludes us from wanting to have to deal with it. Because if I acknowledge that this person really harmed me, what am I supposed to do with that? How am I supposed to tolerate that? How am I supposed to look at that person ever again? And many people rightfully so make the decision to never tolerate that person in their life ever again. And that's the path they want to go through. And yet others do. Others want to pursue a path of reconciliation. But for them, the tapestry is so messy and it's so complicated. And, and I think that is the real heavy lift of this journey is to be committed to have to live in a headspace, which is just frankly, so profoundly confusing. Just to add one point to that is children are used to the idea of we undress for the doctor, we get shots that are painful at the doctors, and our parents are sitting there or sometimes I think now all the time you have a parent present. 
or another doctor present. But but that's normal for kids to experience discomfort with a, another adult and that to be okay. And, and adds more, yeah, adds another wrinkle. You know, it's, it, yesterday it was it was fascinating to me. I was at the pediatrician's office yesterday with my two-month-old child, and my wife and I were both in the room, and the pediatrician asked my wife and I if it was okay for her to open my baby's diaper. It's it's a pediatrician's office. He's two months old. We're changing him forever. And it was interesting. It was interesting to discover that and to see where we are as a society. You know that I think doctors' offices have developed such a stigma around the, what what goes on there. And it was it was enlightening for sure. Okay, I have more what to say, but let's move on. It's not related. Okay, so did you ever confront your nanny as an adult? pre the court or maybe post court, did you ever have a conversation of you did this to me, you ruined my life, quote unquote, my you took away my innocence? So no, pre reporting to law enforcement, my therapist and I had had a number of conversations around sending her a letter, you know, trying to have that sort of that that confrontation. And none of that really seemed appealing in the moment. I, I didn't feel like it would it would get anything for me. At that point, I reported and you know, very briefly, the police suggested setting up a recorded phone call between the two of us that obviously she wouldn't know was a recorded phone call. And if I'm being totally honest, there was a part of me that hoped in the phone call that either she'd deny it or she would just, you know, I don't know, break down and start crying and say how sorry she was. And, and that was not the direction of the phone call whatsoever, which was it was it was validating, but it was also terrifying. It, it was, it, you know, it had been the first time I had spoken to her in years at that point. And for her so coolly and just, you know, w- without conscience, without without concern, just talk openly about what had happened. And again, not knowing that there was someone listening on the other end was difficult. It goes back. It goes back to that confusion. You know, I, I think a part of you almost wishes that, you know, it's not going to be as bad as you remember. And it was it was as bad as you remember. At that point, once that phone call had wrapped up and the police had an actual investigation to to undergo, at that point you're in court and there's lawyers and you know there's a, there's a lot of people between you. Well, what did she say on that phone call? Are you allowed to say? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know I could say. I'm just trying to think <laughs> which part to share. You know, at some point on the phone call, she mentioned that what had happened between me and her as a child was what allowed her to be with her husband until this day. There was you know, absolute doubling down and almost offending of the behavior, and you know. Yes, it, it happened, you know, exactly as you recall, it was meant to make you a better husband. There, there was just a lot of validating. You know, it's interesting. You go into that phone call, the police chat with you beforehand, and they share with you that the point of the phone call is a non-denial. So if you call someone up and you allege that they engaged in some pretty suspicious behavior and they don't deny it outright, even a non-denial is already grounds for an investigation. They got a heck of a lot more than a non-denial on that on that phone call. You know, they got absolute confirmation and validation. And throughout the the court process, there were plea deals that were offered. You know, there was there was this kind of repeated attitude on, on my part, on our part of, you know, this can all be resolved pretty pretty simply. Just plead guilty to one count. The sentence that would be involved in that would not be that extensive. Really, that, that's all we're after over here. You know, all we want is a little bit of honesty and, and accountability and acceptance. And there was an absolute refusal to that point. The case went to trial. There was a conviction. She was sent to jail effectively for the rest of her life. And, and at sentencing, 
at sentencing, you know, when the only move that a person has is to ask the judge for leniency at sentencing, she went on a lengthy rant about the misunderstandings and miscommunications in this whole story. And so it's interesting. I think a lot of survivors that I'm in touch with are aware of the details of my story or in some basic fashion and, and feel like what I got is what they all hope for. You get a conviction on the record with jumpsuits and handcuffs and all that. And I, I am not ungrateful that that was the resolution of my story. And also, I, I, I also think to myself that at the end of the day, I would have been just fine with an apology. I would, I would have been just fine with, you know, a simple acceptance of accountability on the record and we could all have gone home. And it's interesting that till this very day, I, I won't get that. I haven't gotten that. And there will likely be a parole hearing in the next few months. And I probably won't get that at that point either. And I think that it it reinforces how much, in, in many instances, victims want closure more than anything. They want honesty more than anything. And, you know, I've come to understand through the system that that jumpsuits don't don't bring justice and handcuffs don't bring healing it's it definitely you feel victorious and and it does it does help in the long run but i think an apology would also go a long way and 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 that's not there and you know you you think about that you think about the fact that how many people would give everything they have to to have your outcome and how also at the same time your outcome feels you know like there could be something else and you you kind of live in that in the duality of that headspace Okay, I want to go back to the coming out of the closet. For you, that was after you were married, even after you had your first child, right? Correct. Talk to me about what that was like. Well, I mean, there were several phases, and each one seemed more more difficult than the next. And the elephant in the room being you married your wife. I married my without wife telling yes. her married about my, without telling her. And, and, and okay. I think that was probably the, you know, it was first and it was the biggest, it, it, it felt like the biggest in, in, in that moment. And if I'm being honest, each one involved more people and there was more concern for, you know, for judgment or misunderstanding. But frankly, I felt like, I feel like I felt like the person who was most deserving of that honesty was my wife. When I disclosed to her, we had just just passed our second anniversary. And I never really had the vocabulary to talk about what that conversation was like until I actually heard her discuss it several years ago at a Shabbos table. We were sitting around and talking about what that conversation was with a number of friends. And my wife said that if in that conversation I would have shared with her that in the brief 22 years that I lived on this earth before I met her, I had been an accomplished astronaut that had gone to Mars on numerous occasions. That would have been both an easier and more importantly, a more believable pill to swallow than what I actually told her. I mean, you know, we, we were in the in the Chabad ecosystem, Bakram girls, you know, obviously there is every Bakr is different and every girl is different. But for the most part, you know, you, you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, there, there's not that much difference you know once you you've seen one you've seen them all and here i am sharing with her that i have this past and i and i have a past that is so beyond any sort of realm of normalcy of what people in our community go through like you know at the end of the day it's a shidduch system you know there's a limit to how much research our parents do and, and we date for a little while and there's there's a limit to how much we're going to find out about the other person while we date 
And, and, you know, she could have told you all the Bakram in Yeshiva that I did get along with and I didn't get along with and which of my siblings were I was closer to or not. But it, you know, it's very surface level. How much do you really know about a person? And at the same time, you're also convinced that, you know, I mean, any sort of glaring issue would have been nipped in the bud in the investigative process. And boom, you got to deal with this. You got to deal with this. And, and you know, if, if I'm being honest, the, the best thing that my wife was able to do in that moment was to have that acknowledgement and that acceptance that she had to engage in her own path of healing from that point forward. And it was important for both of us to acknowledge to each other that her path of healing and my path of healing were going to be different. There were going to be different paths of healing. And we were each going to support the other person engaging in their own healing process. And yet, at the same time, the fact that we were each on our own journey meant that we were going to have to prioritize our journey in, in many instances and not be able to wholeheartedly be there for the other person because that might, you know, take us a little bit off the path of our own healing. What do you mean by that? You know, my, my wife had to prioritize the fact that she felt that she had, frankly, gotten a raw deal. You know, she had she had married this guy that all seemed to be hunky-dory and all was not hunky-dory. And I had to engage in the fact that I was a victim and I had to feel that sort of compassion and empathy for myself. And she had to feel compassion and empathy for herself. And, you know, at, at, at a certain point, it's not what it's you not signed what up signed, for. Right. And, and I have to acknowledge, well, you know, it's not what I signed up for either. And I'm sorry if I'm not what you signed up for. But frankly, life's not what I signed up for. So, you know, we each can be we each can have our grievances here. And and yeah, you know, that's that was a commitment that we made. We 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 decided we were going to give it a shot, see where this took us. You know, I was going to try and heal on my terms and she was going to try and heal on her terms. And we'll see where we go. And, and Baruch Hashem, you know, we're, we're, I would say that we're doing okay with that. And, and, and that's worked for us. And it's not always easy, but it's, it's what needs to get done. And I think that, you know, by, by prioritizing that it can get done. Before we move on to the surprise, can we acknowledge or talk about the fact that your abuser was a woman and that you're a man and how that may have complicated things or made them harder, or maybe there was more shame involved. Can we talk about that? Yes. So I will just begin addressing that point by saying that till today I will meet, and, and, and this is kind of a comment that's limited to the from community. I'll meet people not in Salt Lake city. You know, when I go back East or, or whatever it is, and go, Oh yeah, I read your story. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you're lucky. Really, how's how's that? I mean, it's not as bad for you because it happened with a woman. I still don't know how to process that comment, and I still still not absolutely sure where they're headed with that comment. Um, you know, from where I'm sitting, I don't know that it's ever appropriate to tell a survivor that you know their experiences make them more or less lucky. But hey, what do I know? What what that meant for me is it really compounded the confusion. You know, I, I've, I've shared before and I'll say it again, you know, what was really almost powerful for me about part of the court process is that, you know, my abuser would come into court and she could have walked out of the courtroom where she was being tried for very serious crimes and walked across the street into a grandmother of the year pageant and wouldn't have missed a beat. And, and in fact, you know, for me, and I talk about this in, in The Big Surprise, for me, one of the most powerful moments of trial was during jury selection, before they actually pick the specific jurors, there's this moment 
where there's you know, this jury pool of about 50 people. And, and for all of them, both those that will be on the jury and those that won't, the judge identifies all the parties in the courtroom. Here's the attorney, here's the attorney, here's the defendant, et cetera. And, you know, she identifies the defendant. My abuser was 70 at trial. This nice, harmless old lady sitting between her attorneys. And I was sitting in the courtroom. The vantage point that I had during jury selection was one where I could see the, you know, all 50 of these random men and women. And I watched each of them stare at the defense table with utter confusion. And so at trial, there were, there were two different male attorneys that were representing her. And you have these two men that are there in suits, and they each have just a mound of paperwork in front of them. And so, you know, the, the judge kind of motions to the defense table, and you watch the wheels turn in everybody's head. Okay, there's a guy. He's probably an attorney because he has papers in front of him. And there's another guy who also is likely an attorney because he has papers in front of him. And in between them, I don't know, in between them is this nice old lady. Is she their mom who like came to watch them in court that morning? Like, who is she? She can't possibly be the defendant because you know, this is a trial with very serious charges. And and I'm watching this happen in the minds of all these jurors. And I'm thinking to myself, now, now you guys understand how confused I was because that was that was my dynamic as well. You know, you, you're reading in the paper about, you know, these horrible people that are, that are doing these things and you look at their mugshots and you know, they've got all the characteristics that we as a society come to expect that somebody who's engaging in this sort of behavior would have. And that, that wasn't my dynamic. You know, it was a woman, it was an elderly, a more elderly woman. It was someone who was just a caregiver who loved our family and who made us lunch and was, you know, worked eight hours a day at my house, five days a week. And at the same time was doing all this. And that that confusion just it shuts you up, makes life unbearably confusing. And, and I think that's what what drives a lot of survivors into silence. What did the conversation with your parents go like? So the conversation with my parents, I had a few weeks after the conversation with my wife. And, and one of the reasons I wanted to prepare myself, I guess, in a certain way is I had no idea how my wife would react. You know, the, the frame of reference is, how's this going to go? With my parents, I had a small measure of expectation. With my parents, I almost expected them to feel guilty about what had happened. And at that point, I had been in enough therapy to, to realize and to understand that the person that did this to me is a predator, and a predator marks their prey. And, and as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't just do this because, you know, there's a lack of supervision in the house and doesn't doesn't just do this out of negligence. You know, it does this in situations where they really believe they can manipulate it. And as such, I, I believe that my parents weren't at fault. I, and I, I believed it back then. And I believe it till today. I don't think there's something they could have done or not done that, that would have changed the situation. And so for me, in having that conversation with them, I wanted to be able to communicate that to them. You know, this is what happened. I don't want you to feel guilty about that. I, I want you to know that you were played as much as I was. Uh, and so I really wanted to prepare myself to be able to deliver on that message. Uh, funny thing about guilt is that it doesn't really work that way. And, and you can sit down with someone and say, look, hey, I don't want you to feel guilty, but X, Y, and Z. And miraculously and mysteriously, they will still feel guilty. And and for my parents, that was, you know, that was their process of, of, healing that they had to undergo you know they, they they came with it from a very different angle you know here we were this was going on in our house and it happened for years we didn't know 
what are we supposed to do with that? And so, you know, I, I talked about how, you know, my wife and I were each committed to healing from this. And, and sometimes those journeys were parallel and sometimes they weren't. And, and my parents had to go on their own journey, you know, of, of what do we do now? You know, how as parents do we respond and react to this? And that was their process moving forward. And at the end of the day, it is an unfair expectation, I think, to sit down with someone and say, look, hey, I'm, I'm going to tell you this now. Don't feel guilty. Okay, I don't feel guilty. You know, and, and I think for them, that was part of their process moving forward. And that was definitely not an, an easy conversation. And I'm grateful for the fact that they, they did the work that was, you know, that, that they felt they needed to do. And we were all able to move on from that together. It's interesting you say that there was nothing that could have been done because today a lot of the education that's focused on child sexual abuse prevention is focusing on preventing a lot of these situations. Do you really believe this could not have been preventable? I understand there's a generational difference right now. And given the information they didn't have back then, they couldn't have done anything different. But does that mean if this was happening today, it still could have happened and they and no one so, would have noticed? Or were there signs that they just did, weren't equipped to pick up on? Signs is an interesting question. So let me address the signs first. Signs are an interesting question. Uh, if you go online and you, you know, look up the, the symptoms, how would I, what would I suspect that my child is doing? Bedwetting, violence, being withdrawn into themselves. You know, I think maybe I would have scored a three out of 10 on that list. I did not all all of a sudden to start bedwetting and my parents were like, oh, that's normal. That's fine. You know, I, I don't believe that there were glaring signs that they had missed. You know, withdrawing into myself, I felt like I was withdrawing into myself. I wasn't in a classroom setting where I, you know, had a lot of play dates and then I didn't have a lot of play dates. It was the, kind of a, a weird dynamic to consider. I do want to say this though, and I'll come out and say something, maybe a wee bit controversial here. There are a lot of incredible organizations within the Jewish community in the wider world out there that are engaged in preventative education. And that's awesome. And that is something which we did not have for a very long time. And the presence of that is remarkable. I wanna say this, preventative education is exactly half of the equation. There's a thought process out there that if we would all just engage in preventative education, then we have done everything that needs to get done and our children will never find themselves in a compromised situation. And I disagree with that. Let me let me correct you. I, I we did episodes on that. They they say that if it, something happens or something happens once or something mild happens, the children are supposed to have the language and the knowledge to be able to address an adult that they trust and cares for them. So that's that's and, and I would and I would agree that that's a little bit of the, of the piece that we need to be putting more focus on. And and beyond just the preventative education, we need to. I feel like do more of a job to highlight survivors in our community, to realize that it does happen. With all the preventative education that we have going on, it still happens. And if there's a child or a young person out there that has been through that, they should never get the impression of, well, you know, if, if I would have just paid more attention to the preventative education that happened, this would have never turned out the way it did. And if it did turn out the way that it did, that's likely my fault. And, and instead create an environment where, you know, we, we do educate our kids and we have these programs in our schools, in our shoals, in whatever, in whatever environment it is. And also sometimes it still happens. And when it happens, God forbid it should still happen. But if it happens, 
a child that goes through that should never feel like they are carrying around this burden that nobody can know that that, that makes them just this marked human moving forward with something in their lives that they need to be ashamed of forever and ever because the reality is preventative education does not have a 100% success rate and that's not our community's problem it's, it's no it, it, it's a reality of the world that we live in the same preventative education that that we're providing the, the people that have been doing this are also aware of that preventative education and they're, they're aware of the ways around the preventative education. And I don't think, you know, I think a lot of people might be like, well, you know, if the from community would do it better, we wouldn't have that. That's that's bogus. Look at the world around us. This is happening on a wide scale. I don't think we're doing it significantly better or significantly worse than the rest of humanity. Preventative education does not have a 100% success rate. And I think it, it should move us as a society to create infrastructure and community and, and mechanisms for the kids that go through this, notwithstanding preventative education, to give them a place in our communities as well. Thank you for bringing that up. When you did talk to your siblings, did anything come up like, oh, I noticed you were gone for long amounts of time and we couldn't find you? Was there any of that? No. No, there wasn't. And I, I appreciate you asking that because it's it, it's kind of a question at the heart of this. You know, what no one realized. And, and, and specifically at, at trial, you know, defense really dug into this. You know, how could how could it be that it happened so many times and no one realized these episodes weren't hours long? They were minutes long, if if that much. And, and she knew your schedules. And yeah, it was like, you know, like, as I've mentioned multiple times, it was a dynamic that she was able to manipulate and exploit. It was there for the taking and she took. And so no, you know, my siblings, my siblings never realized. And there were, I, I firmly believe there were no glaring red flags. You know, there wasn't just gaps of time that weren't accounted for and you know, people weren't where they should have been. It wasn't like that, it just wasn't. I don't know why I have this need to say this, but I just wanna say it on the record. Okay, forget it. Okay, next. <laughs> it was probably going to be something good, so all right. No, I was going to say, you know how what she said to you is this is going to make you a better husband? That's a lie. And no one should use this and no one should think, "Oh, that is a good or that there are good reasons or those reasons make sense because that's part of the manipulation and Right. And and I think I think it's important that you say that because I think it's important that that you realize that young impressionable children would never entertain that trusting adults lie if it came out of her mouth it's got to be true if it came out of her mouth it has got absolutely one million percent to be true and if it's true then wow then that's a valuable piece of information and so yeah i i and i and i think that that's part of the the difficult conversations you know well i did this because you know that adult said it was it was okay and I trusted them. Should I? Am I not supposed to be trusting the the big adults in my life? What are you supposed to say that as a parent? You know, well, that person lied to you. You know, that adult who we've taught you for years and years and years to trust. Well, they lied to you again. You know, that's what makes these dynamics so tricky and so complicated is that duality. It's that message you hear again as an adult that you have to relearn and remind yourself that was a lie, and I may have built other thoughts around that because I was learning and from everyone around me. Sure. What is it like for you as a position in Jewish leadership, so you're a rabbi, to go out with a story like this so public 
in a way that many survivors say, you know, they go through the healing experience, maybe they go through the conviction process, but then they just put it behind them, they want to move on, they don't want that to identify who they are. Let's bring up your book, right? You're coming out with a book. Talk to me about that dynamic. And I'm sure anyone who does something like this, it's a huge societal, you know, identifying marker. But for somebody specifically who is Orthodox and a rabbi and a husband. <laughs> so, sure. So, you know, I'll start with I'll start with a brief anecdote. When I reported initially, I, I went in for an interview with the Salt Lake City Police Department. And I said, you know, you guys, you guys can do whatever you got to do. And, and you, you police and your badges and your, and your radios and your mechanisms and protocols have a great time with this one rule that I have. And if you can't abide by this rule, no problem. Just let me know. And I'm going to go out. And that is, you got to keep me out of this. You got to keep my name out of this. And I said to the cop, I said, if, if this gets out in my community, the from community, I will forever be known as Zippel, the guy who was sexually abused. So can you do that for me? And he said, yes. And great. And off we went. And then the case went to the prosecutor's office and I sat down with the prosecutor and I said, here are my terms do your prosecutor thing. You prosecute the heck out of this. But I need you to promise me that my name will stay out of this. And she had a different answer for me. And she said, today, today I can do that. There will likely come a time in this process where I cannot guarantee that. So here's what I'm going to do. When that time comes, I am going to let you know that the, you know, the rules have changed a little bit and I'm going to do my best, do my best to protect your identity, but it's not a promise anymore. Today, it's a promise. In months from now, years from now, whenever it's going to be, when that changes, I will let you know. And I appreciated that. And we off we went. And along came the time where it was no longer a promise. And I had to consider what it would be like to go public. And I was going to have to testify for the first time. And it was then I decided to tell my story. And what's most fascinating to me in the whole, in the whole story is this. I told the cop and I told the prosecutor that if I go public with this, I will forever be known as Zippo, the guy who was sexually abused. And that can't happen. And you know what happened when I went public? It's exactly what happened. I became Zippo, the guy who was sexually abused in my community. And, and the community's reaction didn't change at all from what I had foreseen coming. You know what did change? My reaction to that. For a while, the fact that I would be seen as that was extremely intimidating. And then it wasn't anymore. And I think that what changed for me was the fact that I was comfortable with myself. Everyone wants to see me in that light. That's okay. I see myself in that light and I accept myself for that. And I don't resent myself for that. So if everybody else wants to join in in that, seeing me in that light, great. I have no qualms with that. And I, I think that's kind of been the decision and the guiding light that has moved everything forward since then. It's been that attitude change that, you know, I have that that acceptance of myself that has allowed me to move forward with this. I think you know, my memoir is coming out in May. And I think that's really kind of at that point, it's, it's in print, you know, you can't run from that anymore. And it, it's been motivated by my arriving at a place in my life, where I'm okay with myself, I'm okay with, you know, that being the perception of me, I think for me, more than anything, the decision to to not just be public, but to really just, you know, keep standing on that soapbox. For me, it's been an, an incredible part of my healing journey. I think for me, having the opportunity to make a difference in the world, you know, to try and bring some measure of good into this world, specifically through the experiences that I have been through, that is healing. The court process definitely had some healing elements to it. It is far more healing to be able to work in this sort of space, in this sort of environment, 
and and make sure that the things that I went through, no one else will have to go through or less people will have to go through or the process of them going through that will be less painful for them. For me, that's always been cathartic. It's always been a measure of 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 being able to change the narrative a little bit and turn the page a little bit. And I would say the same thing it, it exists with the book and you know, telling it as widely and publicly as possible is if, if you can change the reality for one more person, I feel like that will bring healing to you as well. And, and I think it's a philosophy and a mindset that, that will take you as, as far as you want to go with it. They say this experience changes people. How would you say you are different? And I'm not talking about theoretical or identifying things. I'm talking practical things. When you, as a parent or as a person in society or a rabbi, how are you different than a person who wasn't sexually abused? You might be surprised to know that I'm not a helicopter parent, at least not in my own mind. My kids will probably grow up and tell me that I am, but at least in my own perception of myself, my oldest is only seven and a half, so I don't think he sees the world through that lens yet. But in my own in my own life, I, I don't I don't think that going through this has made me a very extreme or intense parent that sees danger lurking around every corner. For me, I, I see the the remedy to that very differently. I think specifically as a rabbi, as as, as a communal leader. I think it's it's taught me two very important lessons, and that is that everybody is going through something. Things are rarely as they appear on the surface. People are rarely as they appear on the surface. And it's taught me the value of listening, I think, more than anything. It's reminded me very few people want to hear your opinion, and people more importantly want to hear your experience. And I think that, in, in you know, I have found in my own career for lack of a better term, being someone who leads a community, nobody wants to hear the ideas that you espouse as to how you think their lives should change. People would much rather hear how you've made the decision to bring change to your own life. For me, sharing with people a lot of the ups and downs that I've had along this journey, which have which have been, you know, core rattling you know i've i've struggled with my own belief at times and i've struggled with my own connection to god and yiddishkeit and, and all that there have been darker times and and people want to hear what has helped you get out of those situations far more than they want to hear from you how you think they should get out of those situations i think for me it's it's tremendously colored my thinking in that sense and, and it's helped give me an appreciation for just the unmatched strength that humanity has and the unmatched strength that lies within everyday folks. And I would say that it, on some level, I consider it a gift. I consider the ability to have that paradigm shift, something which I'm tremendously grateful for. Okay. So let me ask you after this incredible conversation and you sharing so much, and I know it's in your interest to share your story, but not too much because we want people to buy the book. What's in the book? Tell us. Why should people buy it after listening to this? <laughs> I think it's a very good book. So it is It is available on Amazon. Pre-orders are, are, are available now. It's called Not What I Expected. You can look it up under my name or under the title. I, I think that more than anything, what I'm proud of, what's in the book is honesty. What's in the book is is a personal story. I I went to great lengths to make sure that it's not preachy. I don't plan on telling you how to raise your kids or how, or how to go about your life. I want to talk about mine, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There are high moments. There are low moments. There are things that will probably make you cry. Hopefully, there's a few pages that will make you laugh. You know, there's probably a few pages that will make you furious. And, and I think it's a reflection of the human experience. 
uh, more than anything. I am a pretty avid reader, and I think that being a reader helped color my thinking as to what I wanted to do with this project. And I and I never wanted to impose my experiences on anybody else. I wanted more than anything to be honest, to be to be personable, to be you know to be genuine. And I think that's I'm I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that I feel like we accomplished that in, in in the publishing process and in the editing process to create a product that that feels genuine. You know, it it feels like. It could have been written by your next door neighbor. I think that was, you know, that was something which I had wanted to do. Whilst there is an acknowledgement that it's a pretty unusual story, more than anything, I feel like it is the story that could be happening to someone who lives on your block and likely is happening to someone that lives on your block. And it encourages you to to view life that way more than anything. And, and if that's something which someone takes out of the book, then great. And in my opinion, that's a win. And we'll link it in the show notes. One last question. Whose permission did you need to write this book? There is both a logistical and a deeper answer to that. There were people that I you know, wanted their uh, sign off. You know, I was going to include their contributions to the story and, and they were gracious enough to give it. I think more than anything, I think I needed permission for myself. I think I needed permission for myself to be that honest. You know, there, There's a lot in there that you know, you, you write it the first time and you look back at the Google Doc and you're like, okay, wow, that's pretty personal. And, you know, you, you contemplate taking it out and you leave it in and you see what the editors think. And the editors are like, you know, we think you keep that in. That's, you know, that's, that's revealing. I think that going through that process of honestly, look, let me put it in these words. When you're someone who for, for 20 years lived in a space of secrecy and, and dishonesty and, and, just had the complete inability to be authentic and true to yourself going through a process where you can put yourself on paper like that is so freeing and and there's nobody else's opinion that i need to worry about you know it, it, uh, there's, there's no one else that i need to protect i am the most important person in my life that i need to protect nobody else i mean i could just think of your wife your parents so, so right so that was a logistical answer so my wife my parents my siblings you know the various people involved in court that was, you know, they were gracious enough to uh, to be involved, um, and and everything else was was a personal journey, and and I'm grateful for the way it turned out. Thank you so much for Thank doing. Thank you for this. having me. I enjoyed it. I hope you order your book. The link is in the show notes. If you want to join the WhatsApp discussion group, please join. Last week we had some drama that I shared there, so it's so fun having that support group there for me when I need it. I also want to thank all our sponsors. And if you've noticed, we have these pre-rolls and post-rolls. I hope they don't bother you. I am trying them out. I am in the podcast coaching space. So I am helping other podcasters and I am experimenting with this new advertisement sponsorship. And if that bothers you too much, please let me know. I'll let you know how much sponsorships you can make up in to, for me to remove them. For now, we'll keep them in. And as always, I love your feedback. I love your input. And thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>